1 Corinthians chapter 14. We're going to be there in just a little bit. Um, As you turn there, you'll see this is a passage of Scripture on tongues and prophecy. So it's something that we don't necessarily discuss a lot, and, and there is a large variety of opinions on these, on these certain gifts. Um, they are spiritual gifts along with others. They are in a group of gifts that are typically called the charismatic gifts, though all gifts are technically charismatic. Um, and they are seen as the more supernatural gifts, the, more thing, the things that are, don't appear to be natural. They're supernatural uh, so a manifestation of the Holy Spirit in a way that is beyond what is normal. So though teaching and helping and hospitality and administration are all charismatic gifts, things like tongues and prophecy and healing and miracles are seen as supernatural. Though all of them are indeed supernatural because they're gifts from the Spirit and the Spirit working through us. Um, but because of this nature, uh, there's, a, there's quite a bit of tension and weirdness that comes along with it. Weird, not like, stay away from it weird. Weird like, this isn't normal. Uh, and, and I think that if we lean into that tension this morning, it could be good for us. And so I'm going to ask you to do that. Uh, and then in light of this, um, diving into a passage that can, be, uh, can have that sort of feeling to it, I hope that we begin to see the Spirit of God work in the church, our church, the Crossing Church, in new ways and refreshing ways that would be for our good and for God's glory. And always our aim is to see God glorified. And so whatever might come, I don't know if you felt like I was like preparing you for something scary. There's nothing scary ahead. Whatever might come, our aim is to see God glorified and the church be a healthy church. So to that end, let's, let's pray. Father, I'm, I'm grateful for your word. I'm grateful uh, for all that you are and, and your provision and, and your knowledge and uh, your, your wisdom, that you would impart to us any knowledge and wisdom, that we would understand your word, that we would have faith because of your word. Uh, I thank you for the ways in which we can draw near to you by uh, learning and, and meditating on and um, living out of your word. This gospel truth shapes our lives and places our feet where they should step. I pray that this morning distractions be uh, set aside the, the lack of a rug to stand on or any noise in a room or whatever it might be that's drawing our attention elsewhere. Help us this morning, Father. Help us gain by hearing your word proclaimed. Help us to be better so that you would be glorified through the crossing church, through us as individuals, that more and more people would come to know Jesus and enjoy him as we enjoy him to worship him in all of life as we aim to do. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're back in 1 Corinthians, by the way, if you didn't know. We took a break to to get into our vision series, and and that break was, I think, timed well and unintentionally to, to go from talking about our gifts into, again, talking about gifts uh, and how it works in, in the kingdom of God and, and the story of God and the gospel narrative and how we fit into that and how we have been uniquely gifted and placed here as one body for this mission. And, and Paul is writing this church in Corinth addressing certain things that apply to that, that particular people in that time, the people of God. And through this work of interpretation, we seek to see how it applies to us today. And so we're going to do that 
looking at this passage, addressing the specific concern. The question seems to be, the specific concern is, tongues and prophecy, what place do they have in our gatherings? From chapter 11 to chapter 14, Paul's been addressing specifically, what does it look like when the people of God get together? And how does that work itself out into the worship gathering? And he's going to talk about tongues and prophecy in chapter 14. And as we gather together as the people of God, it's important that we understand what does it look like? How do we function? And all of that is informed by who we believe God is, what we see he's done, and what does that mean for us? And so Paul addresses it by making it about one thing, the edification of God's people. So we can talk about tongues, we can talk about prophecy. In fact, chapter 14 is the most comprehensive writing that we have in Scripture on these two things. And they're not, he's not really even talking about those things as much as he is the need for the church to be edified. So his main point, if you're taking notes and you want to try to write this down, it's not on the slide. The main point here is whatever hinders the movement of the gospel or causes confusion rather than growth, or fins rather than unifies, or builds up self at the expense of others. It's contrary to God's intention for the gathering. Because he would have us gather that the gospel would be proclaimed. He would have us gathered that we would grow in our faith. And he would have us gathered that we'd be unified as one body and edified and equipped for the mission. If there's anything present here that detracts or distracts from that, it doesn't belong. That's his point here, but he's going, to do, he's going to describe this by talking specifically about these two things. And the church should be encouraged and edified. So our, our aim as a New Testament church, we said when we started the crossing, we want to just open the Bible. What if we just open the Bible, see the church, and then try to place that here in Monroe and see how it works? What would it be like to be missionaries to Monroe? And gather as God's people with this mission mindset. Well, when we open the Bible and we see the New Testament church, it presents us with some, some hermeneutical challenges. So, so hermeneutics is this the study of interpretation. So interpreting a context, coming across this bridge of application to our context, is difficult sometimes because the New Testament at times seems ambiguous and very, very much about a culture in time. And it's sometimes difficult to cross that bridge. And so when we do that, uh, determining application for our culture is, is difficult, to say the least. And so Christians, in, in light of this, have disagreed about the, these particular things for as long as they've been a thing. And, and our aim as Christians should never be perfection in our doctrine. Our aim as Christians should be a life of love not perfect theology. Our aim as Christians should be right relationship with God that affects our relationship with other people because that's far more important than any creedal perfection. So I'm saying all this as a preface for when we get into this, though it may be divisive to some, may be confusing in ways, it is not as important as our unity as brothers and sisters in this mission of God glorifying Christ in all of life, that we would be united around truth. Disagreeing about secondary things, sure, or tertiary things. I don't even know if it's a secondary thing. It seems evident that Paul wants it to be a background thing, but for all of us to be well-equipped in the knowledge of what gifts are and how to use them for the strength of the church and to the glory of God. 
So Paul's aim is the unity and love, that's the point of chapter 13, for the edification of the church, the proclamation of the gospel to the glory of God. We have to have that foundation. That's it. There are a variety of interpretations about what this passage means. Just like we did in chapter 11 when we talked about head coverings. It was a bit confusing. There's a variety of interpretations. There's all kinds of tension. But as we go into this, it's going to be imperative that we understand terms. So let's start by defining a couple terms. Prophecy. Okay, so prophecy. Speaking, this is in short, speaking something that the Spirit has brought to mind. That's what prophecy is. Speaking something that the Spirit has brought to mind. The canon of Scripture is closed. If there's any doubt of that, let's be sure to know Scripture is done. It's written. It's finished. The Bible is all we need for the edification of the church. Let it be said, we have all that we need to know who God is, what He's done, who we are, and what we're to do. We have it in Scripture. Therefore, prophecy in the New Testament cannot be that. Because the Bible is authoritative and sufficient and complete, New Testament church, the understanding of prophecy is not the same as the Old Testament, which was the prophets came and they brought the word of God, the inspired word of God to the people for their edification. In the New Testament, the gift of prophecy is a revelation from the Spirit brought to the mind and shared in human words, in mere human words, not the perfect word of God. And we even see some transitioning in what we call these individuals. In the New Testament, they're no longer called prophets. They're called apostles when they write the word of God. And prophecy then is is described as this gift that he gives to the people. The apostles can have it, but so can anybody, person of the church. It's a gift of the Lord to the people presented in human words. Therefore, it should be weighed and tested. Now, we see this clearly in the passage we're going to read, but also in 1 Thessalonians 5. Prophecy in this sense should be weighed and tested. And if it's false, cast it aside. In the Old Testament, if a prophecy is false, it's not a judgment on the prophecy, but the prophet, and we're to kill him. In the New Testament, if a prophecy is determined to be false, don't worry about it. In 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul even says, look, don't be afraid of these things. Don't reject these things. Because sometimes they're going to be wrong. It's going to be weird, but weigh it and test it. All right. So it's clear Old Testament prophets were sent by God to proclaim authoritative truth, to warn and rebuke and instruct. New Testament spiritual gift of prophecy is to edify, encourage, and console. Again, we'll see this in the passage. This is all primer. Not correction, not instruction, but edifying, encouraging, consoling. And it's to be judged, examined, and assessed. It could be described as a means by which the Spirit is revealing a contemporary and practical application for God's truth for the church and for individuals in a situation, in a culture, and in a time period. So teaching could, in a sense, have some prophecy in it, but teaching is a different gift, and it's often labeled differently, so it's not the same thing. With prophecy comes a sense of spontaneity, and and there's a way in which prophecy could be an impression or a vision or words given to the body or given to an individual by the Spirit. We have a somewhat foggy idea of what it is. Well, the Village Church, I wrote a definition. I thought it was great. Village Church has a better one, so I just scrapped it, and we're going with theirs. Village Church defines it like this. Prophecy consists of spirit-prompted, spontaneous, intelligible messages 
orally delivered to a person or community intended for edification or encouragement. So there it is. And the Village Church, if you don't know, it's a Southern Baptist church. I know. And their pastor, Matt Chandler, is the president of Acts 29, our church planning network. So we're in alignment with the Village Church if we define prophecy in this way. To add one more word of clarity, it is a word from the Lord, not the word of God, and it doesn't contradict Scripture. Moreover, it doesn't negate the sufficiency of Scripture because Scripture is all we need, but it speaks in a way that personalizes and contextualizes Scripture. So we hold it to our our sola scriptura. We hold it to the, the authority of Scripture as the highest authority, not the only authority. And everything compares to that authority. And if it falls short, if it contradicts, if in any way it's in addition to, it doesn't belong. So that is in the New Testament. We've not even gotten to, does this happen right now, right now, or right here, right now. But in the New Testament, that is what prophecy is. And now tongues. So biblically, there are two expressions of tongues. The human language known by the hearer and not the speaker. That's what we see in the book of Acts. A human language known by the hearer and not the speaker. So the Spirit came down in, at Pentecost and they, they spoke in tongues. And the people that were all over, from all over the world were gathered in this area, heard their own language. So it's worth noting that it seems that the miracle happened at the ear. So whatever was coming out of the mouth of, these, of the, the disciples, it was heard by the people in their own language. In Acts chapter 2. That is one expression of tongues in the book or in the Bible. And then there's this 1 Corinthians expression, chapters 12 and 14 talk about, and 13 talk about this mystery, this utterance directed to God. So it's in prayer or in praise, directed to God. It's not human language, nor is it understood by anyone, not the speaker, not the hearer. Paul describes tongues in this sense as a way for what in which a, an individual can intimately commune with God with spirit instead of mind. So, so this is spiritual benefit to the speaker, but not to the church because they don't understand it. Unless there is an interpretation, someone who has the gift of interpretations, which we're not going to define because we're not talking about that today. But an interpretation of, of tongues can then present it like a prophecy. It can be beneficial to the church as long as it meets all the qualifications of a prophecy. So simply defined, tongues is language or utterances crafted by the Spirit and imparted to an individual. Languages or utterances crafted by the Spirit and imparted to an individual. And they're directed to God. Unless it's the Acts chapter 2, then it could be directed to God, but it's beneficial to whoever hears it because by the miracle of the Holy Spirit, they hear their own language. All right, so there we go. These two gifts, like all gifts, are not for everybody. So if anyone claims you must pray in tongues, there's this extreme that you have to pray in tongues as evidence that you're filled with the Spirit, and then you know you're a Christian. That's heresy, because the gifts, the gifts aren't for everyone. But also there's this extreme that says gifts and prophecy and spirit, I mean in tongues and healing and all these gifts are demonic. So these two extremes, we're going to aim somewhere in the middle, Okay. Surely both can't be right. If it's demonic and it means you're saved, some weirdness about what salvation is. 
So we're going to aim somewhere in the middle. These supernatural gifts clearly existed in the New Testament church, but some scholars on either side of this argument, or the scholars on either side of this argument, respectable men and women of God who study God's word, who have had experiences and have church history and have scripture on their side, on both sides of this, one group say they ceased at the death of the apostles, and the other group says they continue in the church. Conveniently, the names of these, these beliefs are cessationism, say it ceased, and continuationism, say it continue. Both of these based on biblical, historical, and experiential evidence. And some continuationists, which is very common among our, our camps, some continuationists refer to themselves as functional cessationists. So though they believe they continue because they, have, they don't have sufficient evidence from the text that says they've ended, they don't practice them, they don't pursue them, and they don't find themselves in an environment where they're commonly pursued. However, we have a conviction here that because the, the Apostle Paul ex- exhorts us in 2 Corinthians 12 and here in chapter 14 to earnestly desire these higher gifts, especially that you may prophesy, we have a conviction that we should desire them. So we're going to work through some of that this morning. And the elders and leaders of the crossing church, just to have this clearly stated, the elders and leaders of the crossing church are in agreement that there is no biblical evidence sufficient to say that any spiritual gift has ceased or that it it was in any way temporary until the time of perfection comes, chapter 13. The time of perfection, when will things be perfect when Christ returns? So we long to see the Spirit move here in whatever way the Spirit might move for the good of the church and to the glory of God. However, we will be wise in the exercise of any gift, and we will seek the benefit of the church and everyone, every one individual of the church to the glory of God. And to be fair to cessationists, because I'm not one, to be fair to cessationists, uh, they do believe that God does work miracles, and He does have the power to do whatever He may choose at any given time. They would just disagree that he has uniquely empowered any individual with supernatural gifts. Not all cessationists believe that, but some. And, and to think of how gifts are exercised can be confusing. And so some of this is semantics. Because I don't really understand how any gift is exercised fully, 100%, all the time. How are you always perfectly hospitable? How are you always perfectly good at administration? Or I know that I'm not always perfectly good at teaching, but I like to think I have the gift of teaching. So there are ways in which any gift comes and goes when we are in the flesh working for our selfish desires and when we are in the spirit working for the glory of God. And Paul's going to work through some of that as well in chapter 14. And I hope you're like, come on, can we just get to chapter 14 already? We do have quite a bit of writing. Those cessationists believe that it ceased with the death of the apostles which was around 100. It's when John, the last, the final apostle died, unless you're a Mormon, because you believe he's still alive, roaming the earth somewhere. I don't know why they believe that. Don't ask them about it. They don't like to talk about it. So John died in 100 AD, the final apostle. And cessationists believe with him, all the apostolic or the, or the supernatural gifts ceased. The only, the only problem there is there's a lot, there's evidence through church history now, you have to search for it because with the, re- with the Reformers came this whole new way of thinking. And when the Reformers established this new way of thinking, 
A lot, a lot of what we hold to as valuable and good as, a, as the crossing church doesn't include some of the things that came before. So between 100 and the reformers, the Catholic church went astray in a lot of ways. That's why the Reformation happened. However, there's evidence from respected theologians and historians like, like just, Justin Martyr. I was going to call him Justice Martyr. His name, that would be an awesome name. But Justin Martyr, who wrote of these spiritual gifts existing in the church, was born the year John died. So later in his life, wrote about these things existing in the church. And, and African theologians, Tertullian and, and Origen and Augustine, who are well-respected by the reformers, wrote of these gifts existing within the church. And not just from observation, but from being there, witnessing it, experiencing it, seeing it. Sometimes it was written as if it was very normal. Just This is a presence of the gift within the church. And so anyone can argue their experience Anyone can, can proof text history or proof text scripture and argue their experience is reality. I'm not going to do that this morning because this isn't a position paper. The, this isn't a, a creed that I'm presenting to you. This is a sermon. And so what I desire most is to see you, the people of God, encouraged and equipped by the Spirit of God to see what's true. And so all of that being said, let's, let's look at chapter 14 in 1 Corinthians. Because we believe the Bible is infallible. The Bible is life-giving. It informs us and it transforms us. Let's trust it to do so. So Paul's writing here is, it can be easily divided into chunks. Because um, he's acknowledging that there's a place for prophecy in tongues, but he's doing so in a way uh, that gives, gives us reason to prefer prophecy And so I'm going to read and talk as I go. And I want, we're not going to spend a lot of time here because it kind of speaks for itself. But I want to give some commentary as we go. Verse one. Pursue love and earnestly desire spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. So Paul is trying to tie together what we've just talked about in chapter 13, this love chapter, to what he's about to say. Pursue love. While also, while tying that to, to this, he's also saying, if we're going to pursue gifts, if we're going to desire any spiritual gift, it's necessary that we do so pursuing love. In fact, we could even say we are unable to use our gifts. We are, we are only enabled to use our gifts because we pursue love. It is love who is God. Love, God is love. Doesn't, I guess it doesn't matter which way you say that. God is love, and we are filled with his spirit. And in pursuing that love, we exercise these gifts. Verse 2. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him but he utters mysteries in the spirit. So here's our evidence that we're not talking about the Acts chapter 2 tongues because no one understands these mysteries that are in the spirit. Verse 3. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in, in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church now I want you all to speak in tongues, 
but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. So this means greater in value to the church, not a greater gift. All gifts are equal. They're all beneficial for the church. But to the gathering of the people, what's going to benefit us the most is not tongues, it's prophecy. So to be clear, the Bible answers every question we could have about who God is and what he's done and what he would have for us. Yet we see Paul here writing in a way, very convincingly, that we need the Spirit of God to work through individuals to be a blessing to the church. Verse 3, for its upbuilding or edification or strengthening, for its encouragement and for its consolation, which is why prophecy must be in accordance to the Word of God. The only way upbuilding, encouragement, and consolation are going to come is by the Word of God. So it's proclamation of the Word of God in whatever way that would comfort, console, in whatever way that would encourage, in whatever way that would upbuild. Not just in teaching from a text, but in prophecy from, from an impression or a word from the Spirit in a spontaneous sort of way. And verse 4 is admittedly difficult because I don't know where to file this understanding of spiritual formation. Because all that we know about spiritual formation from the Word of God is gaining a knowledge. So we have to use our minds, gaining, gaining information that the Spirit, so we hear words, the Word of God, the Spirit would bring us understanding and use that to transform us. And then being the new us, transformed, our behavior follows. So everything we know about spiritual discipline, everything we know about spiritual formation follows that order that our minds would receive information, the Spirit would give us understanding, and then our behavior would change because we're made new. However, verse 4 seems to indicate that the one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, edifies himself, strengthens himself, not by the mind, but by the Spirit. So in a way, surpassing the mind and gaining understanding, connecting to the Spirit, even though he, doesn't, he or she doesn't even know what they're saying, Spirit is built up. This is obviously a good thing because Paul wants everyone to experience it, yet he points out that it's only for the good of the individual. If we're gathered as a church, the gift should be used to build up the church. So I'm admitting to you, I don't have an answer for this. There's a mystery to this. And I'm also saying I'm okay with that. We trust the Spirit of God. And all that we know about who he is, and we'll get into next week about the order of that. But we can be comfortable knowing God is mysterious. So he continues to explain this, and he goes into why it's a problem. In verses 6 through 12, he talks about why it's a problem. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues... How will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments, such as the flute or the harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech, that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. 
There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager to, for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. So corporately, tongues are not beneficial because they are not understood. For gathered together, it's not beneficial for everyone or anyone to speak in tongues because no one knows what you're saying. It seems pretty straightforward. It's not helpful. It's not beneficial. Why do it? Paul's saying, don't do it. He's giving you some illustrations in case maybe you don't understand why I'm saying this is a problem. Because when we gather together, it's about the edification of the church. And if you're speaking in tongues, you're like an instrument playing random notes. You're, You're like a bugle not making the sound we need it to make so that we know battle's coming. Corporately, we cannot be moved to worship unless the flute and the harp play the right notes. Corporately, we cannot be warned to prepare ourselves for battle unless the bugle plays the right sound. And this can't happen without clarity. So it doesn't matter what the meaning is. It doesn't matter whether or not you believe it exists. If it's there and there's no way to understand it, it doesn't benefit us. In chapter 13, verse 1, it's, it's love or it's, it's exercise of a gift without love. It's speaking the language of angels without love. So it's a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. It doesn't benefit us. So in the pursuit of love to the benefit of the church, he gives us some solutions to the problem in verses 13 through 19. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret, not translate, interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. So there's no understanding. The mind is not engaged. It's not benefiting you in your mind. It's not benefiting anyone else because they don't understand it. What, I am, what am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Paul's arguing that if we're going to do this, if you're going to commune with the people of God, if you're going to If you're going to practice the gift of tongues, then you should use English when you're around people. Well, he's not saying that because he doesn't speak English. But to us, when we're we're gathered together for our edification, for our understanding, for your own understanding, pray pray for the ability to understand. Pray for the ability to interpret so that when we're together, you can speak in English and edify the church. Verse 16, otherwise... If you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he, doesn't, when, when he does not understand what you're saying? For you may, be, you, may be giving thanks, you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. All right, Paul. A little humble brag. Nevertheless, in church... So in a gathering, in an assembly, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. He's like, look, nobody in Corinth speaks in tongues as much as I do. 
Like if anybody wants to do it, I want to do it, is what he's saying. Nobody does it as much as I do. Yet I know that when I'm in the gathering of the people, it's not about me. He's mature. He understands. It's not going to benefit anyone. It doesn't edify the church. So the concern is the instruction and the encouragement, the building up of others. He would rather have five words spoken that are understood than 10,000 of this spiritual speaking that no one benefits from. Concluding this thought in verses 20 through 25, he returns to the reasoning that prophecy is greater. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking, be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. So this idea of don't act like kids, be mature, know that it's not about you, don't be selfish, don't use your gifts in a way that only benefits you. Consider others. If you're going to be immature, if you're going to be ignorant, be ignorant towards evil. Verse 21, in the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people. And even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. So this is a prophecy. This is an Old Testament prophecy. This is the word of the Lord. That's why it says, says the Lord, thus saith the Lord. He's referring to Isaiah 28, 11, when God's word of judgment came to the people of Israel through the Assyrians, which was a foreign tongue. They didn't know what they were saying. So a word of judgment came from God through a foreign tongue, and it didn't benefit them at all because they didn't know what was being said. So this points forward all the way to here and to us. So what possibly, why would he even do that? Why would Assyrians come and proclaim judgment in a way that the people didn't even understand it? sheds light on verse 22. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, they, will they not say that you are out of your minds? So as a sign to the unbeliever, surely all gifts are for the believer. All gifts Prophecy and tongues are for the believer, all gifts. But as a sign to the unbeliever who are hearing these unfruitful words, dismissing the people of God as out of their minds because of this, if you walk into a worship gathering and everybody's speaking in tongues, it's weird. That's what he's, that's, the Bible's saying it. I'm not casting judgment. The Bible saying it's strange. There's a weirdness to it. They'll say you're out of your minds. And really the language here isn't saying you're, you're insane. It's saying you're possessed with the spirit. So an outsider, an unbeliever, those who may benefit from hearing the word of God proclaimed are missing it just like Israel missed it because it's in a language that isn't understandable. It's not beneficial. Not only is it not edifying to the church, but there are outsiders, there are unbelievers who are missing the word of God because we're caught up in being selfish and immature and acting like children. Verse 24, but if all prophesy, an unbeliever or an outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are dis disclosed. And so, falling on his face... He will worship God and declare that God is really among you. 
So not everyone prophesies, not everyone prays in tongues. So he's, he's using some exaggeratory words here. So if everybody's speaking in tongues, then it's going to be of no benefit. But if all would prophesy, if we would speak with intelligible words, if we would proclaim the truth of God, not only would the church be edified, but if we rightly use this spiritual gift of prophecy, edification to the church would happen and the unbeliever would be led to being in awe of God. So when we think of spiritual gifts, let's think of all the spiritual gifts. When we think of spiritual gifts, they're not specifically a thing given to you, a believer. It's not God wrapping up a gift and giving it to you for you to have for yourself, to benefit you, to brag about it so other people can be jealous. Let me show off my spiritual gift. Yeah, I'm so hospitable. Check out my hospitality skills. It's not about you. It's not just for you. In fact, it's not a gift given to you. Though every believer has a gift, every believer has at least one gift, may have more, and we're to desire, apparently we're supposed to desire all of them, we're to pursue all of them. It's not, don't think of it as a gift. More specifically, think of our spiritual gift being the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Every believer is gifted at salvation Not a second baptism of the Holy Spirit, but every believer is gifted at salvation with an indwelling Holy Spirit that works out into life and presents in particular gifts. So he enables us to be like the presence of Christ in the world. The Holy Spirit working through the people of God, making God known to the world. The Holy Spirit gifting us so that we can make God known to the world in our spiritual gifts and in spiritual fruit. So consider this. Our Savior, Jesus Christ, stepped down, took on flesh, and performed miracles everywhere he went. He proclaimed truth everywhere he went. He was the embodiment of the gospel on earth. He died, gave himself up, and the power that raised Christ from the dead the, the presence of the Holy Spirit, the power of God to raise Christ from the, from the dead is indwelling in the church. It's inside of us. Romans 8, 11, Ephesians 1, 19 and 20 tells us that same spirit of him who raised Christ dwells in us. This is the power over sin and death within us. Do we believe the spirit of God as Christians dwells in us? Do we believe it? Do we believe the gospel transforms us, gives us new life, and saves us? Sure. If we want to believe in miracles, conversion, that's a great miracle. Let's believe in that. But all this other stuff I'm not sure about. Maybe. Let's just flex a little bit. Okay, let's let's just relax a little bit. Maybe the Spirit of God that raised the dead can manifest himself through us in all gifts. Don't just think supernatural gifts. In all gifts so that we can be the presence of Christ in the world. And as we consider chapter 14 specifically, whatever you believe about it, whatever you think it is, the demonstration of our spiritual gift is the very presence of the Holy Spirit, the very presence of Christ, the body of Christ in the world. The power of God being put on display through us. It's amazing. And we do so in such a way when we gather together that the church would be edified and strengthened and consoled and comfort to praise him for being the God that he is. Not only that, but unbelievers and outsiders who are here today, 
I know not everyone here is saved. Here today can hear the proclamation of God's word in whatever form it might come. And unbelievers and outsiders, according to this passage, are convicted and called to account. The secrets of their hearts disclosed. Like, wait a minute, you know I'm a sinner? You know I live for myself? You know I'm ashamed? You know I'm afraid? You know I'm being buried? You know that I'm overwhelmed by life? You know that I feel hopeless? Yes, God knows all of this. And he's calling you, your father is calling you to fall on your face and worship him. Praise him. I want this for us. I want every bit of it for the crossing church. I want that we would see the Holy Spirit work in our hospitality and work in our administration and work in prophecy and in tongues. I want all of it. If we believe it exists, I want all of it. And I desire all of it. And I'm very aware some people are uncomfortable with that. I beg you, lean in. Just lean in. If God has more for us, shouldn't we want it? Not for our selfish desire, not so that we can have these highly emotionally driven worship services, not so everybody can pray in tongues, but so that God can be glorified, so that the lost can be saved and in awe of this God that we worship, so that we can truly display the power of God the power of the Holy Spirit that raised Christ from the dead, that we could display it in all of our gifts, that he would be glorified among us. I want this. And I'd so much rather talk about the supernatural work the Spirit of God is doing in the Crossing Church than answer questions about how many people showed up Sunday. I would so much rather talk about the lost people who are being saved, the hopeless who are given hope. I would so much rather talk about mouths that are being fed And God being glorified among us, the liberation that we have from the things that overwhelm us in life, the joy that we can have despite the suffering, I would so much rather boast in God than anything we do well in our own being and anything we have on paper about our perfect creeds. I would so much rather boast in who our God is because we believe he is who he says he is. And he will do what he says he's going to do. And so I pray that this word from God in this passage encourages you to pursue the spirit of God in every way. As with anything, as with anything, prophecy, teaching, any word from the spirit with anything, take this to God. You are filled with the same spirit. Bring this before him. Ask him to show you these things. And trust your leaders here to lead in this without forcing anyone to be uncomfortable. Though sometimes you may be uncomfortable. I don't intend for you to be uncomfortable. Trust the Spirit of God to lead us in all of this because Christ is the head of this church, not any man. And we're going to lean into him and we're going to seek to be everything Scripture calls us to be in our context so that God may be glorified, the lost may be saved, that we would be encouraged and edified. And so the spirit of the Lord is seen among us in our gifts, as verse 12 says. We'd be eager for this, eager for the manifestations of the spirit as we strive for excellence, 
to excel in the building up of the church. This is how the Spirit works in and through us, drawing us into deeper fellowship, conforming us into the image of Christ. All right, let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word and and all that it is. I I praise you for, for helping us to take the risk of trusting you, that I wouldn't have to get up here and proclaim truth and then offer this this 30-minute caution, but that we would see that we can trust you. And we know that we need you. We know that we're flawed in a thousand ways. God, humble us this morning as no doubt judgment has been cast in the past and maybe even here and now. We're, We're judging other believers. Help us. God, humble us. Let us be mature in our thinking. Sober us up that we would see rightly who you are in your scripture, that we would see rightly who you are and who you've always been in your church, and that we would pursue all that you've called us to pursue, that we would desire spiritual gifts, not for our own benefit, but for your glory. We need you, Father. I pray for any lost soul in here this morning. God, I don't know who they are, and I don't always take time to consider it, honestly. I just ask you to do the supernatural work that I could never accomplish. I ask that as your word has been proclaimed, as the gospel is in the air in our, in our preaching and in our singing and in the reading of your scripture and any prayer, I pray that you would change hearts, that you would give life like only you can, that you would stir up in us the desire to worship you, to be in awe of you. Praise you, Jesus. Amen.